0: Book Three, Chapter Four of Uther and Igraine, by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The sun had rolled back between the pylons of the west. Night was in the sky, night in her winter austerity, keen, clear, a glitter with stars, as though her robe were spangled with cosmic frost. The mountain's rugged heads were dark to the heavens, and the sea lay a faintly glimmering, plain open to the beck of the moon. The Irish host had broken and fled at sunset before Uther's charge, and the streaming spears of Eldil and King Nentris, the green meadows, the wild scrubland, had been checkered over with the black swarm of the flying soldiery. The whole valley had surged with swords, "'and the sound of the slaughter. "'By the gray walls of the town "'it had beleaguered. "'The driven host had turned "'and rallied in despair "'to stave off to the last "'the implacable doom "'that poured down from the hills. "'It was the vain effort "'of a desperate cause. "'Broken and scattered "'like dust along a highway, "'there had been no hope left them "'but their ship's the battle had ended in the very foam of the breaking waves. Crag and cliff, rock citadel, and yellow sand had had their mead of blood and the shrill sound of the sword. The great ships had saved but a remnant and had put out to sea in the dusk, their white sails like huge ghosts treading the swell of the twilight waters. With night there had come no ceasing of the carnage. Despair had turned to front victory. Irish Galloglass and heathen Churl, forsaken by their ships and hemmed in by sea and sword, had fought on to the end, finding and knowing no mercy. Gilimanius the king and Pasentius were dead, and the blood of invasion poured out like water. Now it was night, and in the clear, passionless light of the moon, a figure in a cloak of sables moved toward the mound where Galois of Cornwall had flown his banner early in the day's battle. Everywhere the dead lay piled like sheaves in a cornfield, their harness glinting with a ghastly luster to the moon, piled in all attitudes and postures, staring blankly with white faces to the sky, or prone with their lips in blood, contorted, twisted, clutching at throat and weapon, mouths agape or clenched into a grin, man piled on man, barbarian upon Britain. Dark quags checkered the grass with the sickly odor of shed blood, and sword and spear shield and helmet, flickered impotently among the dead. Ygrine went among the bodies like a black monk, seeking some still quick enough to be shriven before their souls took flight from the riven clay. Her cloak was gathered jealously about her as she threaded her way among the huddled figures, peering under helmets, scanning harness narrowly in her death-inspired quest casting hither and thither in the moonlight, she came to a tangled bank of firs, and beyond it a low hillock that seemed piled and paved with the bodies of the slain. Here had stood the banner of Tintagel, and here the prowess of Gorlois's household knights had fallen before the charge of Gilimanius's chivalry. Egrine saw the medley of mail, the dead horses, jumbled figures, wreck of shield and spear rising out above her in the moonlight, cloaked with a silence grim and irrefutable, as though death himself sat sentinel on the pyramid of carnage, half shuddering at the sight like an aspen. For all the intent that was in her heart, she drew near, determined and resolved to search the mound. Compelled to climb over the dead and set her foot on the breasts and shoulders of the slain, her tread lit more than once on a body that squirmed like a dying snake. Strong to do the uttermost after that day of revelation, she struggled on, loathing the task, her shoes clammy with the blood-sweat of death. On the summit of the mound, she came upon Gorlois's white horse lying dead by the wreathing folds of the fallen banner of his house. A whimper of joy came up into Igrine's heart. Sinister as the sign seemed, she was soon searching the mound with an alert desire in her eyes that prophesied no vestige of pity for the thing for which she sought. Hunt as she would, and she was marvelously patient over the gruesome business. No glint of Galois's golden harness flattered her hate as she searched the mound. Many a good knight lay there, some that she had known at Tintagil, and hated because they served her husband. But of Galois she found no trace. As a last hope, she dragged aside the great standard and found a dead man there sheeted in its folds a man in black armor with his face to the sky brastius who had ridden with her from carleian she stood a moment looking down at him with a sudden feeling of awe such as had not come upon her through all that day a white face lay turned to the sky a face that had looked kindly into hers with a level trust and smiled with a wealth of manly sympathy It was a simple thing enough, nothing but one death among many thousands, but it touched a grind to the core and made her ashamed of the lies she had given him. She found herself wondering like a child whether Brastius was in heaven, and whether he watched her. The notion disquieted her. She bent down, took his naked sword from his hand— "'and shrouded him again in the gorgeous blazonry of the flag "'for which he had died, and so left him with a sigh. "'As she climbed back again from the mound, "'a gashed and clotted face heaved up "'and stared at her from a heap of slain. "'It was the face of a man who had struggled up on his hands "'to look at her with mouth agape, "'dazed after a sudden waking from the stupor of a swoon. For a moment, in the moonlight, she thought it was Golois by a certain likeness of feature, but discovered her error when the man spoke to her in gibberish she did not understand. He began to crawl towards her with a certain air of menace that made her start back and rear up the sword she had taken from dead Prostius. The thread of steel proved needless enough, for the man dropped again with a wet groan, and seemed dead when she went and bent over him with thoughts of succor. Passing again to her hillock, she stood there brooding and looking out towards the west. A great bell in the town by the sea was pulsing heavily, as though for the dead, and there were many cressets flaring on the walls, and torches going to and fro in the meadows. The sounds of a triumph hymn chanted by hundreds of deep voices, floated up like a prayer from the western meadows. At the sound, Ygrine's eyes were strangely full of tears. By some strange echoing of the mind, the idols of the past days woke like the song of birds after a storm of rain. Clear in the dusk, she seemed to see the red figure on the black horse. His face, lit like a god's, by the slanting light from the west as he stretched his sword to heaven. Again, the scene changed, and she saw him riding through the flowering meads of Andredswold, looking down on her with a grave and luminous pity. She was glad of him, glad of his great glory, glad that he had kissed her lips and berated the love to her that was in his heart. The scene and the occasion were strange enough for such broodings, yet her eyes were very dim as she stood in a half-dream and let the picture drift across her mind. The revelation had come upon her with such suddenness that she had been for the moment like one dazed. She had watched Uther sweep on with his horde of knights, and had stood mute and impotent as one smitten dumb while the red harness and the golden dragon of Britain vanished again into the moil of war. Now her whole soul yearned out with a wistfulness born of infinite regret. If he had only come to her alone, if he had only come to her as Peleus in some gloom of green, she could have fallen down before his horse's feet, kissed the scabbard of his sword, wept over his helmet, and burnished it with her hair. Sight of that dark, sad face had made a beacon of her on the instant. And Galois! If she had hated him yesterday, she hated him with a tenfold vigor since she had looked again upon Peleus' face. Certainly her malice had grown with an Antian strength with each humbling of her heart to the dust and the very thought of Galois seemed blasphemy against her soul at such an hour. With the memory of Galois, a cloud dulled the clear mirror of her mind, and her mood of dreams melted into mist. The strong sense of bondage, of ineffectual treason, came back with a fuller force as though to menace her with the fateful realism of her lot. A hand seemed to sweep down and wave her back with a meaning so sinister that even her hate stood still a moment as in sudden fear. She had some such feeling as of standing on the brink of a mysterious sea, whose waves sang to her a song of peril, of misery and desire, cooped up together in the dim green twilight of some coral dungeon the lure of the unknown beat upon her eyes, while love and hate, like attendant spirits, beckoned her over the yawn of an open grave. For the moment the importunity of her immediate need drew her from meditations like bitter and divine. A battlefield after dark, with all its lust and pillage, was no pleasant place for a woman, the lights of the town still showed up brightly in the west, but Agrine had little desire of the teeming streets, where victory would be matching blood with wine, and where the revels of the soldiery would celebrate the day in primal fashion. She was content to be alone under the stars, and even the dead seemed more sympathetic than the living at such an hour. A wind had risen, and she heard the horse salve of the forest in the night. The thousand voices of the trees seemed to call to her with a weird perpetual clamor. She saw their spectral hands jerking and clutching against the sky and heard the creak and gibber of the criss-cross boughs swaying in the wind. Leaving the hillock and still bearing Brastius's sword, she held across the open seeing as she went the dark streaks that dotted the hillside, the bodies of men fallen in the flight. She gained the trees and was soon deep among the crowded trunks, pondering on her lodging for the night. Wandering hither and thither, looking for some more sheltered spot, her glance lit upon a dim swell of the ground that proved to be an ancient mound or barrow. It had been opened in times past probably in the search for buried treasure or for weapons. Brambles, weeds, and heather had roofed the shallow cutting into a little recess or cave that gave fair shelter from the wind. And a grine, braving the notion of barrow ghost or spirit, claimed the place as a godsend and took cover therein. The last crumbs in her wallet finished she sat with her face between her palms, brooding, big-eyed in the night, like any druidess, wreathing spells in her forced solitude. The wind was crying through the trees, swaying them restlessly against the starry sky, making plaintive moan through all the myriad aisles. Igrine listened like one huddled among her thoughts to keep out the cold. Miserable as was her lodging, her mind seemed packed with the day's battle. The whirl and thunder of it were still moving in her brain. A wild scene towered over by a man, bareheaded on a black horse, holding his helmet to the setting sun. Often and often she heard the roar of hoofs and saw the rush of the charge that had trampled the banner of Tintagel and hurled Golois and his men en route from the ridge. Had it been death or life with the man? Was he with the king, hearing holy mass and lifting up the wine cup to heaven under a flare of lights, or lying stiff and pinched under the mild eyes of night? It was this thought, holding hope and doubt in common yoke, that abode with her all the night in her refuge under the trees. It was bleak enough, with a silvering of frost over the land, when darkness had rolled back over the western sea, uncovering the wreck of death that lay huddled on ridge and slope. Ygrine was stirring early from the barrow. With the cold and her own thoughts, she had slept but an hour, and at the first filtering of light through the branches, she was glad and ready for the day. She wandered through the forest towards the open land that showed glimmering through the tree boles, with no certain purpose moving in her mind. The future as yet was a blank to her, lacking possibilities, jealous of its secrets, saturnine as death itself. There shone one light above her that seemed to burn through the unknown. It had long led her from distant hills yet even her red lamp of love beckoned her over a sepulchre. Coming to the forest margin, she came full upon the incontestable handiwork of war. Under the sweep of a great pine lay the body of a knight in black harness, all blazoned with gold, while his gray horse was still standing with infinite patience by his side, nosing him gently from time to time. The man's helmet, a visored cask, somewhat gladiatorial in type, had fallen off, and a young beardless face was turned placidly up to the blue, a white oval pillowed upon a tuft of heather. There was no blood or sign of violence visible, save a blue bruise on his left temple. It seemed more than probable that he had been pitched from the saddle and found death in the fall. Egrine stood and looked at him with some pity while the horse snuffed at her, staring with great wistful eyes as though for help or sympathy. The man was young, with a certain nobility of early manhood on his face, and it seemed to her very pitiful that he should be cut off thus in life's spring. As she looked at him, she noted that he was slim of figure, and not much above middle height. A sudden fancy took her on the instant. She tethered the horse, and kneeling down by the man, her fingers were soon busy at the buckles and joints of his armor. Ungirding his sword, she drew it from the scabbard and set it upright at his head, sheathing Brastias's in its place. Having stripped off his armor and long surcoat, she covered him reverently with her cloak, slung the horse's bridle round her wrist and, gathering up his arms and helmet, went back to the barrow where she had passed the night. The wood had received a woman in the dress of a woman. It gave, in exchange, a knight on a gray horse, a knight in black armor blazoned with gold under a surcoat of violet cloth. The brazen helmet visored and hooded with mail over nape of neck and throat, gleamed and flashed under the green boughs. There were three lilies, snow-white and a cloven heart upon the shield, and the horse trappings were bossed and enameled, gold and blue. A rode out from the trees with the pomp of a launcelot. The gray horse's mane tossed in the wind, The firs rippled on the hillside. The cloud ships sailed the blue with white sails spread. The girl was aglow with new life under her guise of steel. The essence of manhood seemed to have created itself within her as from the soul of the dead knight, and she suffered the glory of arms with a pride that was almost boyish. Holding out from the trees at a solemn pace, she headed westward down the valley along the grass slopes that slid between Scrub and Thicket to the sea. On the road below her, a company of spears trailed eastward uphill in a snake-like column that glittered through the green. Pushing on boldly across ground where the battle had raged hotly the night before, she reached the road as the head of the column swung up at a dull tramp on their march home for Kerlion. Gruffing her voice in her throat, she hailed the knight who headed the troop for news of the battle of yesterday, posing as one late on the scene, and sore at having struck no blow for Britain. The knight drew aside, and letting his men tramp by, he gave tersely the tale of the fight as he had seen it from King Nentris' lines. St. Jude be blessed, said Igrine at the end thereof, I am glad, friend, of these tidings. As for the field, it looks to have been as bloody a one as I have ever set eyes on. Bloody enough, quoth the man, giving his mustache a twirl. Too bloody for Gilamanius and dead Vortigern's whelp. What of Uther? Scarce a scratch. King Meliagrant? Wounded, but drunk as the devil and Glorisa Cornwall. The man laughed as at a jest. Bedded in an abbey, said he, with a split face. Mere flesh, mere flesh, nothing deeper. Ygrine thanked him with her helm a droop, and turning her horse, rode back towards the forest, heavy of heart. End of Book Three, Chapter Four. Recorded by Lori nadeau Richardson. www.lori Vo. dot com.